I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is author and professor Nolan Higdon, Ph.D., Uh, We're going to be talking about, is the fear of misinformation a moral panic? And one of his latest publications include The Anatomy of Fake News, a critical news literacy education. Um, And a new poll found that a a majority of Americans say misinformation spurs extremism and hate. Nolan Higdon, a National Project censored judge, professor, media scholar, and author, offers a unique take on this important topic. He reports that misinformation or fake news has been around forever. We need to figure out how to teach people to spot it, and that necessitates media literacy education. He also explains how citizens should not empower others to determine the veracity of information for us. We need media literacy education to empower citizens to do it for themselves. This is the core belief of democracy. Uh, He's a uh, lecturer at Merrill uh, College and the Education Department at the University of California, Santa Cruz. uh, His areas of concentration include digital culture, news media history, and critical media literacy. He's been featured in the New York Times, CNBC, and the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome to the show, Nolan. Nice to have you on the show today. Hey, it's nice to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So, okay, so the topic today is the fear of misinformation, a moral panic. What do you mean by that? Well, I think, uh, especially since 2015, 2016, um, it seems like uh, the United States has sort of had this idea or um, this perception that all of a sudden fake news took over and it's um, infecting all parts of our society. Uh, but what I, what I try and argue is that uh, fake news has been around forever. Um, one of the beautiful things about being a human is that we have the ability to create and imagine. Um, but it also means we can create and imagine um, total BS or nonsense, and others can believe that stuff. And so we have to figure out how do we want to most effectively manage the false information that is out there um, I think uh, sort of freaking out and blaming it for everything uh, dis- distracts from conversations about potential solutions. Now, I agree with you. Fake news, yes. Okay, so it's been o- around for a long time. Uh, we make up stories. Uh, we all have our narratives. However, isn't it a little bit different now because we have so much access to fake news all the time? Everyone does 24-7. We are bombarded with, let's say, misinformation or fake news, and that, that is a, that's different than, say, it was pre-internet, um, that it's a different context. Yeah, every time a new medium um, or something like the internet um, is developed, it creates a new complication for users, right? Um, there's, there's ways you can create and disseminate fake news on the internet that simply just was not possible um, about a, a century ago. Um, But this is why I think uh, in a democracy, we need to prepare citizens to be active participants in the democracy. And that means equipping them with the skills to to spot misinformation. So, um, you know, to to think about fake news, I think it's first important to establish a a definition. So I, I like to think of fake news as any false or misleading information that's presented as legitimate journalism or verified news. Um, and when you use that definition, you start to realize there's a lot of fake news um, everywhere and that you can really boil down how to spot it down to basic things like critical thinking skills and evaluating evidence. 
Um, and I think, um, yes, the Internet has created new complications, but we, we have, you know, data that show that when people are equipped with media literacy skills, they're able to, to spot false information or test the veracity of information, um, regardless of what new medium is created. Okay, so give us examples. Let's go one, two, three. How critical thinking skills. Give us a short tutorial. How do we do that? Because most people, they go on the net, they see something, uh, and then they accept that as the truth, and suddenly they're discussing this, you know, this at a cocktail party or telling their friends that uh, they heard this and, and accepting it as the truth. So m- many, I don't want to say most, but many of the people I know, that's what they do. That's how they, they read the news in the New York Times. It has to, it's, it's the, you know, that's the, that's God's truth or they, wherever they read it. Uh, and everybody sort of has their place, their go-to place to get their information. So what do you do? Critical thinking skills, one, two, three. <laughs> Great question. Um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, if, to paint some context for those those steps you're you're um, discussing, yeah, you know, I think it's important to to know um, you know what journalists do. You know, journalists are people who who go out and um, collect sources, and usually they have editors who look at their work, try and tease out their bias um, to publish a legitimate news story. So you need to know what you're looking for in terms of what it, what is journalism. Um, I think it's also important to know <clears throat> some of the techniques that fake news creators use. So they usually like to get information that appeals to hate and fear, divisive information, sensational content, um, you know, snappy headlines, um, things like that are, are things that, that fake news creators use. So one way or a couple ways you can you can protect yourself is <clears throat> just number one, um, Look when you look at the uh, piece, whatever it may be. Say it's an article on on social media. Make sure you read it top to bottom. Don't let the headline um, dictate your interpretation of the content. Often um, the headline can be much different than the content. That's one technique fake news users um, use. Um, second, um, look at the news outlet. You know, is this is this outlet uh, a news outlet? Does it have a code of ethics? Does it have a history of reporting sound journalism? Um, even, you know, a really good news outlet like the New York Times, <clears throat> they make mistakes, and sometimes they um, let their bias shape articles to the point that they do publish false information, like the, the WMDs in the run-up to Iraq, for example, or, or Jason Blair, who was a reporter there who published a, a numerous false stories. But the New York Times does have a long record of producing legitimate journalism, too. And this is where I think it's important um, to get down to um, granular detail, too. Uh, Not just look at the news outlet, but look at the journalist. Who's the person writing the article or um, the broadcast person making the video? Are they a journalist? Do they have any conflicts of interest? Um, So someone like Chris Cuomo, when he was at CNN, for example, um, he, he was never a journalist. So whenever you t- turned into Chris Cuomo, you're always getting an opinion. Um, if he's talking about his brother, who's the governor, that's a conflict of interest. So being aware of how those things um, shape the news and, and information. And I think lastly, and most importantly, I'd say, um, really look at the sources. A good journalist has um, a litany of very good and verifiable sources. If you can't find their sources or you can't verify their sources or there are a dearth of sources, that's probably a sign you're, you're looking at uh, misinformation. Well, as a layperson, I think I do one of those things, at least. I really have 
and started to do it more is to uh, really be aware of who the journalist is. And, and it's easy. You can just Google them and you get a lot of information about that particular person. But I have another question. Oh, you're talking about journalists who are presenting the news. And I have, I think, uh, difficulty with this when I listen to not necessarily even what the news is, but how it's presented. And then it creates a bias. Instead of actually reporting the news, and I, almost, it's almost across the board, a lot of these journalists start with this. They're very dramatic about uh, the way they present the actual incident, which may have occurred but it 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 the way it's said it's so exaggerated in terms of their affect and their expression it changes the way you process the information yeah that, that's the that's end a, of my um, question or my comment yeah <laughs> no no problem no yeah it's um it's a clearly a technique um that is used i think um you know that to kind of uh, i think uh, contextualize what you said there which is spot on um about, you know, starting in the 1990s, well, let me say this, prior to the 1990s, when we talk about news media, and generally any news outlet was trying to get the, the largest audience possible. So they wanted to get, you know, the, the old the old folks and the young folks and the liberal folks and conservative folks and get them all, you know, watching the broadcast or subscribing to the paper. But the advent of cable really fragmented audiences. And so um, cable news in particular started targeting smaller demographics and trying to maximize wealth from them. And then the internet fragmented audiences worse. And now even legacy media and online spaces is trying to target smaller audiences to maximize wealth. And when I say smaller audiences, it's usually demographics and those demographics tend to have a, a political bias or lean. So, you know, CNN or MSNBC or New York times tries to get like those suburban liberals where like a Fox or Wall Street um, Journal will try and get like those older conservative folks. And so um, to keep people tuning into the channel or to keep folks subscribing, um, they figured out that you really have to preach to the choir. Um, so you can take legitimate information, but as you point out, but you introduce it in a way that feeds to the audience's bias, uh, where you make the audience feel like they're on the right side or, or they're the, the good guy, if you will, to use re like a wrestling analogy. And the other side is is the bad guy. And so sometimes um, it's not even necessarily that we have false information. We just have um, a very hyperbolic narrative attached to the information. And we're arguing against the character of the, the quote unquote other side. Um, and uh, as much as, you know, some journalists are responsible for this in their articles, a lot of this has to do with all the people in news media who are not journalists. These are the you know, the talking heads, the, the Rachel Maddow's and Sean Hannity's and Bill O'Reilly's or the op-ed writers for the papers and things like that. They really gin up um, audiences, uh, feelings and emotions toward this content. And it makes it really difficult to discern, um, you know, how you actually feel about the information. Now, in a democracy, because uh, I think obviously this is uh, to your point that uh, in a democracy, we need to be able to uh, get along, have a dialogue with people who uh, disagree with us. And this kind of, quote, journalism, if we're going to call it that, really pits people against one another in a very destructive way. And particularly in a democracy where we, the media should be trying to seek the truth and present that to the to the public, right, to preserve our our uh, democratic society so that, uh, you know, the dialogue continues. 
So it's a really serious issue um, uh, that we're talking about. And um, it seems that like at this point in history, we've really come to a point where it really, uh, this kind of journalism is very seriously putting our democracy in danger. And I, I don't know, do you have the answer how to mitigate this? This is part of what you're talking about. Um, yeah, I, have, uh, yeah, I mean, part part of the answer, and I, I think your, your your point is spot on. And, and um, Mickey Huff and I, we, we saw this, you know, problem for years, and we, we wrote a book called Let's Agree to Disagree that tried to, to tackle both this problem and, and the solution. Um, we just released the book this year. But, um, yeah, you know, there, there's some scary polls out there where a third of Americans think they're going to see a civil war in their lifetime. Um, Americans' number one fear is other Americans. Um, and, you know, more than climate change or terrorism or, or whatever, what have you, um, that uh, is really unsustainable for a democracy. We, we, we don't have to agree on things, but, you know, we have to at least agree on like electoral results or we have to agree that if you get elected, it's not going to ruin my life. Um, it may be difficult. It may be a pain, but, you know, it's I'll, I'll get you in the next election, if you will. Um, but that's we, we've really lost that sensibility. Um, and I do think a lot of it has to do uh, with our media system. Um, the media model I just discussed um, that Matt Taibbi calls Hate Inc. essentially is teaching us to hate each other versus just disagree um, with one another. And social media has really made this, this problem worse because now we can um, just follow, like, and interact with the people we agree with, and we can block and mock the people we disagree with. And democracy necessitates con constructive dialogue. So what we talk about in Let's Agree to Disagree is learning how to be constructive in our dialogue. Um, you know, what, what, is, what is the purpose of dialogue? It's not to own the other side or insult the other side or hurt the other side. Um, you're trying to make your case and, and convince the other side. And so we need to get comfortable both sharing and, and listening in constructive dialogue. Um, we also need to be more um, savvy, critical thinkers. We need to think about information. Um, you know, if your uh, quote unquote side, um, you know, has been caught doing something wrong or being hypocritical, uh, whatever it may be, um, you, you've got to own that, admit that it's okay. Um, you know, it, it'll build credibility for you. If anything, you'll be better coming out of it by admitting that your, your side has its problems. Um, and then lastly, uh, we talk about the need to be more savvy in our media use, um, not just in testing the veracity of information, um, but really understanding the ways in which media, whether it be social media or film, um, a lot of that content uh, platforms and films are owned and created by a handful of, of wealthy people with um, very narrow interests. And the information we receive and how we receive it um, is done in a very um, purposeful way that often misleads us and um, gets us to, to hate each other, have misconceptions about one another, and we'd be wise to, to stop doing that because uh, we think democracy is worth fighting for. Well, you're a professor, so uh, you have access to uh, obvious students. And um, what's happening with, I don't know, they're actually not millennials, they're younger than that. Uh, but in terms of like your students, where are they coming from? I mean, they, they, they're just, they're, they've been part of this whole new kind of jour journalism. Uh, since they were born the last 20 years. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's really imp uh, important that you point that out, that 
uh, a lot of these students, their conception of journalism is whatever's on the social media feed. Um, their conception of a debate is people shouting over each other on cable news. Uh, their conception of democracy is you show up every four years after we spend hundreds of millions of dollars on primaries to pick candidates. Um, and so, uh, you know, and this comes after, you know, of course, decades of getting rid of things like civics in high school. Um, yeah. So there, there's a lot of um, work we have to do in, in, in higher ed um, for folks. But I, I'll say that at least in my um, you know, 10 years of teaching, students respond um, in a pretty positive way. They're very interested. Um, they're just uh, sometimes, you know, confused or caught off guard by the um, gap between the rhetoric of, of American democracy and what they're seeing in front of them. Um, but as you uh, walk them through ideas of journalism and civics and, and constructive dialogue, students respond pretty well. They're pretty engaged. They're interested. They have um, obviously a long list of things that they care about and want to see change in the society. And when you're equipping them with the tools to, to help them make those changes, um, they respond positive. In high school, uh, I was on the debating team, which I think is one of the best ways to get people to think about the other side, because you were forced to debate one side of the issue and then the other, uh, and then the other side of the issue. And it's a great way to learn critical thinking. I don't know how popular debating is today. Probably not very popular. You mentioned civics; that's gone. So all that it's a you know it's a different uh, ball game, I guess. But uh, debate and debating is. Uh, I don't know if they, and in, in college too as well, um, was a really good way to, to kind of uh, do the kind of, what, what, what you've been talking about to uh, agree to disagree. Yeah, no, I, um, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> I'm not sure of how much um, debate is, is offered anymore, but um, yeah, we see a shift in a lot of um, teaching now particularly in like English departments, um, there's a lot more discussion about like, how do we create classroom assignments that, that foster debate and, um, you know, sort of, for lack of a better word, force students to engage with ideas they, they disagree with. Again, not to tell them what to think or change their mind, but to teach them how to think, how to think through, um, you know, something you disagree with. So uh, there, there's definitely a strong effort to, I guess, reassert that in the classroom. And I think it's desperately needed. Yeah, so I assume that you're doing that or you do do that in your classroom? Yeah, um, we, I try and always bring up, um, you know, assignments or uh, lesson plans where students are at least um, forced, at the very least, to explain the idea they disagree with and explain it accurately before they tear it down. Um, so illustrate that you've listened and you know where the other side is coming from um, before you get into critiquing or um, interrogating what, what someone has said. And I think that's just really... You know, we teach that in the classroom for a lesson, but it's really a good life um, skill to have that you can't really engage in, in dialogue with someone unless you're listening to them. Yeah, and the, when it, what comes up in my mind is the word civility. We sort of lost the civility when we're talking to someone who we disagree with, uh, or um, and our, maybe our whole society has lost that ability to be civil. And if we can't engage with each other in a civil way, then I think we've lost it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think it's important to, to point out for, for listeners, um, you know, when Mickey and I wrote the book that we've, we've been talking about here, it's Let's Agree to Disagree. Um, you know, some of the pushback we sometimes get is, okay, here's two, uh, like, you know, wonky college professors painting this um, rosy picture of how we can we can all get along. Um, but one of the things we, we pointed out in the book is there, there's a lot of um, 
brave people who are who are using dialogue to to change minds about critical issues right now. So I think of folks like um, Daryl Davis, who's a, an African American man who um, engages with members of the Ku Klux Klan, and through dialogue, usually starting with music, he's a musician, um, gets these folks to actually leave the Klan and give him his give him their robe. I think he's collected over 200 robes um, so far doing this work. Um, we, we talk about how there's um, uh, trans activists uh, who went in Maine and Massachusetts during election season, and they were followed by, by academics who studied them. Um, and they went and had 10-minute conversations with transphobes to get them to change their vote on protections for, for trans people. And they were, they were successful in these, these conversations when they came at it, as you pointed out, with a civil, um, constructive approach. Uh, we use the example of sports players like um, Drew Brees and Malcolm Jenkins, the New York Saints, oh, no, sorry, the New Orleans Saints, who, um, you know, uh, Malcolm Jenkins was able to change Drew Brees' mind about the Black Lives Matter protests through, through dialogue. And we even raise issues of climate change. There's been um, very wealthy people who spent millions of dollars to combat efforts to combat climate change. And through dialogue, they've had their mind changed, and now they're spending millions of dollars to combat climate change. So I think it's important to, to note that some of this stuff may sound like, you know, kind of feel-good um, stuff that we just wrote in a book, but there are folks actually doing this difficult work on the ground and, and having amazing impacts. Um, and I, I think that's a great motivator um, for us all to try this as well. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, so what you're saying, it's not just this touchy-feely stuff. That's not what we're talking about. I mean, it, it, yes, it's academic, but then you obviously in the book, um, we should promote the book. <laughs> um, you have people who are out there in the trenches, so to speak, doing exactly what you're talking about. I mean, you mentioned a few, and I'm sure there are a lot more. Um, yeah, it's, 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 really, um, it's really difficult work, and <clears throat> I know um, – you know, there, there's some pushback I'll occasionally get, but I like to remind people that a democracy is a 24-hour-a-day job. Um, if, you know, if you're looking to work a lot less on your society, you're in luck. There's a lot of authoritarian regimes who are looking for, for docile bodies. Um, but to, to succeed in a democracy, we have to work 24 hours a day. So if people do have um, hate in their hearts or people are ignorant about certain topics. Um, it's, it's up to you to change those minds. That, that's what being in a democracy is, is all about. Um, it's up to you. It's up to me. It's up to all of us um, to work hard to make a society a better place. So I know sometimes this, this can seem quite, quite overwhelming, but um, it's, it's the job that, that we all have um, if we want to have a democracy because um, it's very easy to, to, to lose a democracy um, so I always, and I also take um, comfort from looking at that folks in in the past who've, who've overcome you know incredible odds. I think of you know Frederick Douglass overcoming slavery uh, to then you know uh, send his to try and overcome um, the Civil War and then try to overcome Jim Crow. Um, you know the guy worked tirelessly day in and day out. Um, his life threatened. His children's life threatened. Um, but was able to succeed. And so I'm not going to you know, say I'm tired um, until I do have to work. Someone like Douglas does. And I think those kind of stories are helpful in reminding us the, the power of democracy and the power of us fighting within that democracy. Yeah, those are or should be our heroes. And they are. I always think of that song, Crosby, Still, and Nash. Uh, you, you know, you have to teach your children well. Um, start, yeah, start with the children. Uh, we only have a couple minutes left. So uh, let's uh, 
give us a website and websites to go to uh, for more information about your work and about your book, because we were fortunately able to touch on some of the topics in the book, agree to disagree. For sure. Yeah, we discussed the two books. Um, the one that discusses the history of fake news, now to spot it, is The Anatomy of Fake News, which which came out in August of 2020. Um, and then at the end there, we were discussing Let's Agree to Disagree, uh, which Mickey Huff and I wrote um, in, in 2022. Um, you can find my work in um, op-eds at projectcensored.org. Um, and then you can also follow me on um, Twitter to stay up to date with what I'm doing and what I'm publishing, both academic and, and op-eds. That's at Nolan underscore Higdon. That's N-O-L-A-N underscore H-I-G is in good, D is in David, O-N um, on Twitter. And that's where you can find my work. Um, and I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. This was such a great discussion. Yeah, this was a great discussion. Thanks so much for being on the show. Great information, obviously. Um, author, Professor Nolan Higdon, Ph.D. Uh, we've been talking about a lot of things, but we also talked about is the fear of misinformation, a moral panic. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 